This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. An update on what's happening at Hess Village and uh, the concerns that were raised and have been raised for years now about security at Hess Village. Uh, and now, of course, uh, it looks as if, well, because of uh, the declining attendance at the village and some changes in uh, the makeup, uh, that the uh, paid duty officers, which was one of the more contentious points, uh, about the policy that was being instituted at Hess Village may be rescinded, and that's maybe. Jason Fires, the counselor for Ward 2 downtown, which includes Hess Village, of course, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Counselor Farr, how are you doing this morning? Very good. Thank you for emphasizing the maybe, because right now it sits as a notice of motion bill, as you know, and then it will come back September 19th for all of council to uh, chime in. All right. This thing has ebbed and flowed, Jay, for the last number of years right now, long before your time on council, of course, uh, because of some of the concerns. Where are we now with Hess? Well, I mean, I've been consistent uh, for uh, my time on council that uh, the two-tiered tax, essentially the two-tiered policing, is uh, something that I I didn't support, and I did so on behalf of the business owners uh, there in Hess Village. Um, Currently, we are at a place we haven't been at, I don't think, uh, since, you know, the entertainment district was uh, put into place, and that was long before 2010, long before my time, late Mm -hmm. 2010. Uh, we're seeing, obviously, a tremendous growth in uh, lots of quadrants, uh, whether you want to call them entertainment districts, art districts, or what have you, in the downtown core. And I think you and I celebrated uh, at the end of last year uh, the opening of 28 new restaurant establishments in 2016 alone. Uh, so what we're seeing is, I, I believe, uh, pockets of trendiness, uh, pockets of uh, entertainment districts, whether they have that official council label or not, in our downtown core. So it's sort of spread out, and we're not seeing the kind of populations or numbers, particularly on weekends, in the former, uh, I don't want to say one and only place to go, but the uh, former uh, um, um, one spot that was quite popular, and that was Hestilla. So in short, declining attendance, uh, declining numbers, and a change in uh, approach, too, with uh, many of the operators down in the village. How so? Uh, Because we heard mixed reviews uh, about this policy in the past, and and I do want to emphasize, by the way, that this this idea predates your time on council. Uh, Matter of fact, it goes all the way back to when Andrew Horvath was the councillor for the area, uh, and some of these policies were being instituted. And, And you know anecdotally, that uh, this is this has been a very contentious issue. I mean, there were some serious problems, and I think some very legitimate concerns yep. about safety at Hess Village, about some of the activities at Hess Village right now. Now you say the crowds are smaller right now, but as the as the nefarious activity that uh, nefarious activity that that people were worried about has that has that declined as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, first on the house, so on the positive, we can get into that in just a moment. But it's become much more of a restaurant or foodie type of uh, place. It's more popular, I think, uh, during the day uh, than it is in the evening on some occasions. And so if you just take a little walk down George Street, it's a quite a different atmosphere. Um, and one that I know the neighborhood associations, when we sat around the Hess Village Liaison Committee, were uh, seeking uh, direction towards. So it's kind of headed in that direction, not in all cases. But uh, so on the how so, how has things changed? That's where my head was at. But to the point of um, of crime statistics, pretty much flatlined over the last three years, uh, Bill. And I, I'm, I'm en route to GIC, so I don't have statistics or figures with me. 
But I will say, and, and I've said it to you, and you followed this story for, for the last eight years anyway that I'm aware of, um, that this isn't about uh, anti-police. The police have done an absolutely tremendous job. They always sit at the table. They always have representation whenever we talk about uh, policing in the village. They, they uh, uh, coordinate and work well with the bar owners, with the community, with the councillors who sit at the Hess Village Liaison Table. And they are um, simply understanding, I think, over all this time, and I've had meetings, whether it was Chief DeCare and all of his senior officers, or more recently with uh, uh, Kinsella and others, uh, uh, corresponding with Marty Schulenberger, the superintendent for the area. Um, they understand where, where I'm at, and they also, I hope, appreciate that this isn't about how they police. It's just particularly about the bill. And I and, and, and just to the... To the, to the arrests or crimes pretty much flatlining over the last three or four years has the problem gone away or has the problem just moved to some of those other areas no i i wouldn't say that we're we're uh a fence free in hess village but that's obviously a good a great question because that's certainly uh also the case everywhere else and not just in the downtown we we have issues you know i mean when you have when you're serving alcohol and you have a cluster of uh, entertainment establishments, bars, restaurants, nightclubs. There's going to be issues, whether it's one nightclub, uh, particularly in one area, or a cluster of uh, uh, clubs or restaurants in, in other areas. And that's not a, a problem that's exclusive to Hamilton or, or exclusive to any pockets of Hamilton. So, so you know, there, these areas obviously need some form of enforcement whether it's a combination of municipal law enforcement, working with licensing, working with the AGCO, and, and the police are part of that. They're partners in all of this. Many of the people, uh, and we've talked with a number of the owners of some of the establishments there over the last number of years, uh, Jay, about about their reaction to this. And, and you heard the feedback from many of them as well, that they thought that this whole idea was unfair. Was that a motivation in trying to, uh, at this point, rescind this and say, time to move on? Yeah, and... and Certainly, uh, that is the case. What we're talking about with paid duty policing in our one and only entertainment district in the city of Hamilton is something that is exclusive, as we can still, we still haven't found any evidence of this going on anywhere else in Canada. So it is definitely something that only uh, the city of Hamilton has done. Before my time, the council uh, uh, that uh, uh, established this in 2009, 2010, uh, um, made it part of an entertainment district bylaw that there would be shared policing costs. It's now uh, 10 officers max. But a, another good point I might make is that, and, and one of the reasons why you know, I'm, I'm focusing on, it's not the village it used to be. Attendance is down. It's a different atmosphere. Uh, while there are lots of folks, many are dining uh, in facilities that don't have to pay into the paid duty program. There's, there's less now paying into this program because it fits only for them as far as the bylaw parameters and therefore with less that means a bigger portion of policing costs as well which is an also also an issue because the ones that are established as restaurants that have the seating capacity that bylaw does not apply to them so that's also part of the issue it seems then with that distinction that this was almost a two-tier system uh, where where one of the owners there was was getting dinged by this extra fee, this extra fee for for security. Well, the next door uh, restaurant or facility, whatever it might be, may not be right now. I can understand how that would cause an awful lot of angst among some of the owners there. 
Bill, I've heard stories of, of, of some establishments getting wise to, and, and with their due diligence over the years, uh, you know, anybody who was paying into it was obviously resistant, that didn't feel it was fair, uh, had, you know, whether it was a, a lawyer or a leasing experts or whatever, um, and, and during uh, preparation for licensing tribunals on late payments, uh, had discovered, I don't even call it a loophole, but an actual condition in the bylaw that says you you don't need to pay paid duty if there's a, a proportionate number of uh, seating capacity that reflects more of a dining establishment or restaurant establishment than a nightclub. So, Bill, I have heard, and, and we'll get this uh, hashed out on September 19th when this returns as a motion to planning committee, but some establishments, two that I've heard, have actually just gone out to Ikea, bought a whole bunch of stools, throw them on the floor. Licensing comes around that dictates who pays and who doesn't. They count the stools and say, yep, you're now exempt from, from paid duty. A simple act of just putting more seating in the establishment has resulted in them uh, not having to pay and ultimately fewer having to pay, which means having to pay a greater amount. We also have a few establishment owners, at least one that I, I'm aware of anyway, maybe a couple more, hopefully coming to delegate to explain from a business standpoint what the paid duty policing is is costing them, um, it, it, it reflecting, you know, a, a weekend's worth of activity. And, and the one that I've had the um, uh, opportunity to see in advance and working with, by the way, collectively with licensing to, 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 to make this motion, I didn't just willy-nilly throw it together myself. I worked with staff on this motion. Um, they, they, they are, they're taking an incredible hit with the paid duty costs. And again, because we're not seeing the kind of attendance that we're seeing, the, the entertainment crowd is spread out all over the core now. Uh, let me ask you something, though. You mentioned that a number of the establishments that were paying into this are no longer uh, there now for, for I, well, I suppose a number of different reasons. Yes. Was the cost of the paid duty offices a factor in some of those businesses closing down? Well, each you've heard from some and they've told you so, and I certainly have heard the same. So most will tell you that, in fact, all that I've dealt with, and I've dealt with them all, whether it's in meetings of six or three or, or, or different representatives coming to my office or me going to them over the many, many years that we've been looking at this issue, there hasn't been one that says I'm perfectly willing, able, and capable, capable to pay this, this extra tax. Not, not any of them like it. Are, are police on board with this? You mentioned you over the years had discussions with Chief DeCare and, and with Deputy Chief Kinsella and others about this right now. And, and, uh, and I, I, I know they had some concerns about safety, not just in the immediate area of Hess, uh, Jay, but also in some of the surrounding areas. In other words, once the bars would close, an awful lot of the, uh, the mischief and some of the other things that they were concerned about would spread to our surrounding neighborhoods. What's the status there? Is that still happening? Well, they've been incredible. They've been great. To be honest with you, uh, this year especially, uh, we have Superintendent Marty Schulenberg now uh, at the helm running the paid duty program. I hope you caught that, Bill. Did you catch that? Did Yes, I did. Got it. Sorry, you cut out on me. Um, and they've reduced. There's been some weekends. There's one that I know of for sure. I think there's two, possibly three, where they haven't had any complement of paid duty officers. So that's very telling. And it also, in a, in a variety of ways, it says they're working with bar owners. They understand that while 10 is the max, there is absolutely no reason to justify 10 officers. They've uh, pretty much on average, I'd say, only had six, though they could have a complement of 10. So they've reduced the complement, uh, ultimately reducing the cost by four officers. 
Um, and and uh, again, a couple of weekends there. I, I will know officially September 19th, but there's been a few uh, weekends that I'm aware of where they haven't had any paid duty because the crowds just didn't justify it. So you can see which way this thing is trending. That said, I obviously cannot speak for the police. I left it as a notice of motion because I wanted to give the uh, Hamilton Police Services an opportunity to delegate on September 19th, as I'm sure they will. They have in the past. They've been present when we've debated it in, in committee, and uh, I'm sure they'll be present here. And that will help inform the decisions my colleagues make. I'm not going around uh, trying to lobby uh, for change. I'm going to make this a committee issue, and I think there may be enough good reasons uh, notwithstanding the ones I've used in the past, that this is a, uh, exclusive to Hamilton extra tax on business in one specific area that is found nowhere else in Canada, but some new facts and figures that have obviously emerged that may result in, at the very least, a modification of the bylaw, but, uh, but uh, ultimately maybe just saying it's no longer an era where this may be required. Police will still police according to the way they need to police. No one's telling them, how to police this is about this extra cost and the burden it brings, particularly as attendance has sort of spread out all over the city now. All right, but on that point, and, and right at the beginning of our conversation, you said you were pleased that I emphasized the word may uh, right. be ending right now. Are, are there people that are supportive and that would like to see this continue? It sounds as if this is a slam dunk, unless there's going to be some opposition to this idea. Are you sensing that there could be? Oh, I, 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 it's. You know, we always say to you, it's hard to predict what's in the minds of our colleagues. To be honest, when you, as you know, put a notice of motion on the floor, you can't debate it. You don't speak to it. So it was merely a, a read out aloud at the end of the meeting. I didn't have an opportunity to catch up. I had to run to another meeting to catch up with any of my colleagues. So I've had no post-planning committee assessment after the fact yesterday. So uh, we'll see. But I think it deserves one uh, final, uh, because I think this will bring finality to it. Uh, approach at the floor for a greater understanding and hopefully a little bit more uh, compassion from my colleagues on just exactly why this bylaw was put in place in the first place, what the environment was like then, what it's like now. Is it something that we should contemplate uh, uh, either eliminating or amending in some way? So I, I, can't, I can't answer that, Bill, but I can tell you just from past experience, in a lot of cases, whenever I've gone before my colleagues with this uh, particular issue, and there's probably been three in the past, and you've covered them all, it's uh, almost like it's a, t a tabled uh, uh, result, or uh, we need more information, or another study is being done. This isn't what that is. This is a, uh, some, hopefully brings some finality in some way, shape, or form, and it will be based on uh, information and in, uh, uh, informative uh, debate and discussion that we'll receive at planning committee and likely also council. Well, uh, to suggest that uh, you never can really read what council is going to do and how they're going to react is a massive understatement. So we'll, we'll leave that statement uh, up there dangling. Uh, yeah. you've, which, speaking of which, you got to get into a meeting. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for following this, Bill. That's uh, War 2 Downtown Councilor Jason Farr. Well, should we withdraw the special police protection for Hess Village? I, the bar owners I've talked to, and quite a few of them over the last number of years, I never liked this idea. Always thought it was a punitive tax. So I, I got to figure that they're pretty happy about this. But we'll wait and see how council responds to this in a couple of weeks. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hurricane Irma picking up strength now and battering down on the uh, Caribbean as uh, we speak. 
been watching some of the pictures on the weather network over the uh, the last number of hours right now, and it's it's frightening actually as we see some of the the devastation that's starting. Florida could be impacted by the weekend. Uh, the president's already approved pre-landfall emergency declarations in the state in some of these areas. What are we in store for, and uh, how do things like this happen? Well, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Jacqueline Whittle, who is a meteorologist and storm chaser uh, with the Weather Network. You can follow her on Twitter at jwhittletwn, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Hey, Jacqueline, how are you doing today? I'm just fine. Good morning to you, Bill. Good to have you with us again uh, on firmer ground, I guess, than you were when you were down in uh, in the Houston area talking to us about this. How does Irma compare to what you saw with uh, with Hurricane Harvey? Well, I mean, a lot is yet to be determined in terms of uh, its size. It's certainly a much bigger storm uh, spinning away in the Caribbean right now. Um, you know, a lot of people are ex- asking exactly that, you know, especially when we talk about a landfall in in Florida or maybe the Carolinas, you know, is this going to be another repeat of Harvey? But I can tell you that, no, it's certainly not going to be that kind of uh, flooding type of uh, damage. And the amount of rain that fell with Harvey is very different from what we expect uh, with Irma. The main reason is just our weather pattern, what steers the storm. So with Harvey, there was basically a lack of steering flow, so it stalled. And that's why we got, um, you know, almost a meter of rain in that area. So that's what did it with, you know, there with the flooding in terms of the Houston story. With this, we're going to see kind of the uglier side of a a typical hurricane if this makes a major landfall um, in Florida or the Carolinas still yet to be determined. Um, We're going to see the strong winds. We're going to see the the big storm surge. And and really, Texas got that initially with Harvey, too, when it made a landfall in Rockport, Texas. Um, But, you know, really, I think what we'll remember Harvey for was, was the rain. And I think what we'll remember Irma for will likely be the wind. I got to ask you a couple of elementary questions, and and obviously this is one of the reasons I watch the Weather Network as much as I do. Because I find it very instructive the stuff that you guys give us in the way of background. Uh, I saw one of the tweets earlier this morning that suggested that the size of the storm of, of Irma is about the size of, of France. I mean that that is mind boggling. Is that that's got to be abnormal? Oh, it it absolutely is uh, abnormal. This is a, a like a a perfect storm in terms of the meteorology. It's, it's um, got everything that you would expect with a major hurricane and then some. If there was a Category 6 classification on the Saffir-Simpson scale, we'd be nearing that. This is a high-end Cat 5 storm uh, with a symmetrical shape on satellite. It's like if you could draw the perfect hurricane, that's what this is. It's got the eye wall that is just ferocious. Um, you've got um, you know, the, the feeder bands and the, the upper-level winds doing all the right things in terms of divergence. Everything is picture-perfect from that perspective. You get on the ground, and it's absolutely devastating. Um, you know, this, of course, just moved through areas like St. Martin and Barbuda. Um, it's on its way into the British Virgin Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, somewhere in between, um, and then ultimately Puerto Rico. You know, this this is going to be catastrophic, catastrophic um, in the Caribbean. And I know a lot of, I was just watching actually um, CBC News Network, who we do weather for as well mm-hmm. here at the Weather Network. And they were saying that there's a lot of um, flights that are going in to get people uh, at these hotels. I mean, there's a lot of Canadians, as we know, who go to these places and and they're hoping to get them and, and bring them back. So they're evacuating the people from the resort. My parents head down to you know Punta Cana, Dominican Republic, twice, three times a year. This is something that, as Canadians, we don't know what this is like. We know snowstorms, 
and we could talk a lot about that. We could write a book on it. But when it comes to hurricanes and tropical weather, it's very different. And, you know, if I was in a hotel, you know, somewhere in St. Kitts or, you know, Puerto Rico or any of these lovely spots, it, it would be scary for sure. Um, so hopefully we can get as many uh, folks out of there and out of harm's way as soon as possible. I've only been in that uh, part of the world once, uh, almost a year and a half or so ago. We were in San Juan and, and, and through the Virgin Islands as well. And uh, and I, I just found it mind-boggling that people just kind of accept this as, well, yeah, it happens from time to time, like we do with, with blizzards. I guess it's all relative, but, I mean, the destruction that we've seen. I mean, a blizzard is one thing. You get shut down, and we, obviously there can be a loss of power in it. I don't want to, you know, try to, to minimize the impact that a blizzard can have here. But you've seen some of the pictures, Jacqueline, of, of what happened in St. Martin. I, I mean, one tweet I saw here said just about every structural building has been leveled at this stage. Uh, it's it's phenomenal. People just seem to say, well, I chose to live here, and this is what I guess I have to expect from time to time. Uh, I agree. You're, you're right. I mean, some people, if you told them the amount of snow we get and, and how, you know, the roads are shut down or if you're stuck in your home for days or you're bringing food supplies via snowmobile, they think, wow, that's crazy. I couldn't even imagine that. But you're right. It's like another Tuesday if you live in central Ontario, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the winter. We're used to that. Um, you're right. We're not used to this. And it is a different level, especially when you're talking about a storm like Irma. It's one thing to have a tropical storm. It's another to have a Cat 1, Cat 2. A Cat 5 and a high-end Cat 5, we're talking about sustained winds at 300 kilometers an hour. You know, it's it's like a, a ferocious tornado that is just relentless. And that's the, the other thing. You know, you talk about, you know, where people want to reside and where they want to raise their families and, and live. Some people would think to, to raise a family in Oklahoma where they get, you know, tons of tornadoes through the month of May would just be crazy. But, you know, lots of people live in Oklahoma, and they're not moving, and, and they just accept that that's part of living there. Um, but, you know, with a storm like this, it is rare to see an Irma. This is not your everyday hurricane. Um, but, you know, you yeah, you got to take this one seriously, for sure. And, and you're right, you really can't compare it to, to say, winter weather here at home. That's a very different beast. I got a t- quick story. I was we were down there. I was talking to the guy. That, he owned a little bar right in the town square in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, and uh, we got talking. And he was from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And I said, "What did? How'd you get down here?" He said, "I got tired of snow." And I said, "And you gave it up for this?" Because there was talk of a tropical storm even then too. And he says, "Yeah, well, you know, you you just roll with it." I don't know how you can roll with it with something like this. I mean, essentially, they're going to have to to rebuild certain sections and and I guess whole communities because of this. Yes, I agree, and. You know, we're, we're really focusing here on the, on the Caribbean and that part of the world, but let's go to Florida. I mean, think about how many people live in Florida. And I, I frequent uh, the Naples area every every winter, um, and so I, I intended on going down there in, in November. And, I mean, as far as yesterday, the way the models brought this Cat 4 potentially into that area, I thought, geez, what's going to be left of Naples? And, you know, these areas are constantly growing. What You know, the last major... Well, before Harvey, the last major landfalling hurricane we had was 12 years ago. Well, obviously, there are, there are hundreds of thousands of more people living on the coast um, in Florida on both sides of the peninsula. So, you know, you think about what kind of impact Irma could have uh, on an area like Florida versus 10, 12 years ago when, when we had our last major uh, landfalling hurricane. This storm uh, reminds me a lot of a storm that I chased with my partner, Mark Robinson, last year it was hurricane matthew mm-hmm. uh, the reason I, I think about matthew is we were stationed in west palm beach and we were you know kind of seeing if we could get real close to the eye wall and, and try and get some uh, really 
um, intense footage for the station, all the while trying to be as safe as possible. Um, and we set up in parking garages. That's the safest spot where you're going to be a- away from the surge. I don't recommend this to people that aren't professional meteorologists, but, um, you know, you're up above the surge level, so the, the water can't get you that way. Um, and then you're protected because you're in a very solid, strong, concrete building. Um, it's, you're protected from flying debris, you're protected from the wind, and we can take our cameras and shoot and, and get as much footage as we can. But I said to Mark yesterday, because we're contemplating going down there in the next day or two, geez, if there's a Cat 5 coming in, I, you're not going to find me in a parking garage. Like that, even if, you know, there's nothing solid enough for a Cat 5, in my opinion. It's, I mean, maybe it'd be okay, um, but maybe it wouldn't. So, you know, this is if there's a Cat 4 or 5 moving in on Florida, we haven't seen that in a very long time. So um, it's something to really keep a close eye on, but it could end up being like Matthew next uh, last year. And the center or the the eye of the hurricane could just, you know, skirt the coast and never really come on shore. Um, If you recall with Matthew, it made a a landfall in the Carolinas. And it did damage for sure, but they really, you know, dodged a a bullet there. It could have been a lot worse had that storm moved on land in Florida. By the way, your point's well taken. I know that you and Mark talk about this, and and so do others at the Weather Network when uh, you do file those reports. Uh, you guys know what you're doing. Uh, it's uh, not advisable for people that are untrained to simply say, hey, I think I'll stay outside and watch this tornado, or in this case, this hurricane. Uh, you know, you're professionals. You guys are meteorologists. You understand the, the risks and the dangers, and you know how to mitigate an awful lot of that, too. But uh, it's just a uh, word to the wise uh, when we- uh, this kind of weather hits. i got to ask you, and by the way, we just kind of, you and I were talking, I just got word here that uh, the NFL game in Miami this Sunday has now been canceled. Uh, the Dolphins were supposed to play Tampa Bay in Miami, and uh, the NFL has now said, no, we're not going to... Now, they haven't decided whether they're going to reschedule it or play it on a neutral site, but they're not going to play it in Miami, which tells you, I guess, just how concerned they are about the severity of the storm, Jacqueline. Yeah, definitely a good call to get out ahead of that, um, you know, with that amount of people uh, in a game like that. I I think that we're going to see... I already heard that the Keys, uh, some of the airports in the Keys, um, I don't know the exact names, I'm sorry, but they've been shut down as of tonight, so the last flight going out tonight, um, you know, and and I imagine we're going to hear more of that. Even if the storm does stay just offshore of Florida, the Panhandle, or not Panhandle, the Peninsula, rather, um, you know, we still could get very strong uh, tropical storm force winds or even hurricane force winds on the left side of the storm because it's so large. Um, so, you know, if just the sheer size of it. So, you know, I think Florida is going to get impacted in one way. It's just a matter of how severely they'll get impacted uh, from Irma. Let me ask you something again, one of these elementary questions, but maybe something a lot of people just say, well, I think I, I shouldn't answer. I don't want to. How do you decide what category of storm is it? Is it just the ferocity of it? Uh, yes, it's all based on wind speeds. So the, the higher the wind speeds, the higher the category is given. Um, and that's, called, that's based on a scale called the Saffir-Simpson scale. Um, so this one is a, a Category 5 storm with winds at this point of 295 kilometers an hour um, and uh, or 185 miles per hour. And then, of course, you've got gusts on top of that, and the scale doesn't really account for that. We're, when we classify a hurricane, we're looking for sustained winds. Um, you may hear a stat about Irma, and I was kind of thrown off by it this morning because I heard the stat floating around on Twitter, that it's the strongest storm we've ever seen in the Atlantic Basin. It, it, it is and it isn't. It's, it's kind of a confusing set. It's the strongest storm that we've seen this far east in the Atlantic Basin. So we've had stronger storms with stronger winds 
um, and lower central pressure, which is how we measure uh, a hurricane based on the central pressure. Um, the lower the pressure, the stronger the storm. We've seen stronger storms. Now, this one's a beast. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's got all the stats. But if you hear that stat, it's actually the strongest in the Atlantic, this far east in the Atlantic, because our, our storms actually are born well to the east off the west coast of Africa, where they're just sort of baby storms beginning. How difficult it is is it for you and, and, and others to track something like this? You were mentioning you're not sure if it's going to hit landfall. It could go up the coast. It could skirt the coast. Uh, it, it's it's got to be very difficult to actually decide or, or see with with the movement that you're seeing right now exactly where it's going to go and when. Yeah, it is a difficult task. Um, um, it, you know, the, the difference with this one is we've had a lot of time to watch it across the Atlantic, uh, whereas Harvey... We we did watch uh, the development of Harvey, but then it, it made a landfall in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico as a tropical storm. And really, it could have fizzled out at that point and been really a non-story, but it didn't. It, it kind of revived over the western Gulf of Mexico. That made it very different because you only had about two days to prepare Texans, or really the Gulf Coast in general, for a potential landfall. Um, so everybody had to react really quickly, and I think they did a great job at you know evacuating where they evacuating where they needed to, and just really just bracing for that storm. This one, we have a lot more uh, time out ahead of it. We can see it, you know, five seven days out, and you know, really, we're talking about a Florida impact toward probably Sunday at this point. If the Carolinas become the focus, that's not till Monday. So you can see how much time we have to really you know pour over the model data and assess where it's going to go. But it can drive you a little cuckoo, too, because the, the models will change back and forth. And, you know, this morning the runs were a little bit further east. Now, that's good news for people that live in Florida. But then tomorrow could be under back west, or later this afternoon the models could come in and go, oh, gee, we're back to west. Okay, Naples is back on the table. And it you're really kind of reacting, and you're trying to, as a chase team, you know, you're trying to determine – I got to be packed. I got to be ready to jump on a plane. I know these are very small problems in the grand scheme of all this, but just from that perspective, you're okay. We got to go. Oh, wait, where are we going? Oh, no, no, we're going to Carolina. Nope, now we're going to Naples. Nope, now we're going to Miami. And you have to refine that forecast. It's kind of like finding a target for a tornado chase day, just on a much bigger scale. You know, what state do I need to be in? What what side of the coast do I need to be on? It's uh, yeah, quite a, a science, actually. With the size of this storm and the ferocity of it right now, Jacqueline, uh, and, and our, our thoughts and prayers are with the people that are being affected by this right now in the Caribbean and certainly in Florida and maybe into the Carolinas as well. But, but there's always a concern, of course, you know, even right here in, in the Hamilton area, in the Golden Horseshoe, how far up the coast is this going to go and what kind of an impact is it going to have? As you say, a lot of the time these things tend to kind of blow themselves out a little bit. And we still, we, we've seen the, the residue of some of these, of course, with some severe weather and heavy rains, et cetera, even up to here from some of these mm-hmm. systems. But then, of course, Sandy happened, and I think that was a stark reminder that, hey, you know what? It could happen here, too. I mean, they could be that ferocious. With a storm this size, is that a possibility or a probability at this point? Yeah, it is a it is a possibility. Um, you know, I think at the very least we might just get a gusty day with some rain here. But yeah, if this um, you know moves into you know hypothetically right up the peninsula of Florida and then into Georgia and the Carolinas, um, yeah, by the time it continues to move north on land, it certainly won't have much in the way of tropical characteristics left. But it could bring us some rain and some some gusty winds with a sandy scenario. That's not off the table either because, you know, if this 
trends a little bit further east. The, the further east you go, you become closer to a non-landfall scenario, or you become, in terms of the United States, you become closer to a East Coast landfall. So that's when you get a Sandy. That's when you get, um, Sandy had a million other reasons why it was a superstorm and mm-hmm. devastating. Surprise. But, you know, all of a sudden, it, okay, instead of a Carolina landfall, we're looking at, you know, a Virginia landfall or, you know, throughout the mid-Atlantic in general, up to New England or the Maritimes. So the further east we go, and if the storm can hold it together, you could have a landfall in Newfoundland and completely bypass the Carolinas. Right now, the way the models look is it's probably going to skirt Florida, although, again, this could change literally in the next hour or two. But right now, as I talk to you, I think it's probably going to just stay east of Florida, the worst of the conditions, and then go north into the Carolinas is, is what I'm thinking, um, and then, you know, kind of probably probably sizzle away. Um, you know, let's hope. And as we're watching this, and I, again, I'm just looking at the, at the tweets and watching the channel, uh, the Weather Network coverage uh, from earlier today, too. There's another one forming right now. Is it Katya? Yeah, there's actually two. There's Jose, who's out in the Atlantic, right behind Irma. And uh, Jose is expected to be a hurricane, but not a major hurricane. So a major hurricane is a Category 3 or stronger. So it's expected to get up to a Category 2. And the main reason for that, Bill, is because it's kind of – trying to develop an overworked conditions because we've got Irma that just took all the energy out of the ocean and all the instability. And now we've got, um, we've got uh, the next one. Um, sorry. What did, what did I say? The name? <laughs> oh, Jose. Sorry. Jose. And, yeah. Uh, Jose is kind of going to have a hard time really getting too strong as a result of that. And then Katia is developing exactly where we saw Harvey develop in the Western uh, Gulf, the Bay of Campeche. That storm, Katia, is expected to actually kind of go almost backwards into Mexico. So no threat to Texas. Um, you know, nothing to worry about there, which is great. But, yeah, it's obviously a very active um, Atlantic hurricane season. i got about 30 seconds left here. With uh, as, as you're describing these to us, Jacqueline, and, of course, this is in, in the context of, you know, you were down in Houston talking to us about Harvey a week or so ago. I, I feel like I'm at Pearson Airport watching the planes come in. It just seems like it's one after another here with hurricanes. <laughs> is, is, is that unusual? Is this a more intense hurricane season? It is a more intense hurricane season. Um, the Atlantic Hurricane, uh, the, the NHC, the National Hurricane uh, Center, did predict an above-average season. So it's not terribly uncommon, but it is more active. And you're right, it just seems like one is lined up uh, right after another. We are currently at our peak of our hurricane season. So if we were to see this, this is, this is when we see it. Well, listen, if uh, you guys head down there, you and your uh, storm-chasing partner, Mark Robinson, be safe, would you? And uh, we'll talk again soon. I appreciate the time and safety first. Thank you, Bill. Take care, Jacqueline. Jacqueline Whittle, of course, meteorologist and storm chaser, uh, tracking uh, Hurricane Irma and the impact that's going to have. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Trump administration has ended DACA. That's the headline just about everywhere now, and uh, with good reason, too. Uh, saying that only Congress uh, can save under uh, the undocumented immigrants known as the Dreamers. Now, this was actually done by executive order by President Obama some time ago. Uh, this is how uh, the president reacted to this yesterday. I have a love for these people, and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it properly. And I can tell you, in speaking to members of Congress, they want to be able to do something and do it right. Uh, maybe to help these kids, he need, they, Congress needs to save them from Trump, I would imagine. <laughs> 
Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us to talk about this and uh, a few other things that uh, the president uh, has been uh, responsible for, including, uh, well, with getting into the coverage. Anyway, thanks for coming in. It's great to see you. My pleasure. You're great so to be busy. Here. <laughs> Actually, to get you here live and in person is really kind of cool. Uh, let's let's start with DACA. Uh, this is a bit of a surprise but for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, Trump at one point a couple of years ago, actually when Trump, uh, Obama administered this program, thought this was a great idea, supported this program. Uh, is this him playing to his base once again, this this anti-immigration rhetoric that, uh, that some people think was a major factor in him getting elected? It certainly looks like that. It looks very cynical. It's even been described as cruel by no less than President Obama, who said he would stay out of Trump's way unless Trump threatened the DACA program. Listen, immigration reform is a tough, tough situation for the U.S., and many presidents have struggled with it. And these DACA kids are kids who came over, many of them under the age of six. They only know America. That has been their world. They don't remember in many cases their country of origin or even speak the language of that country of origin. And so the U.S. is their home. And what Obama did by executive order was say, listen, you can be a dreamer for the American dream. You can come out of the shadows, be a productive citizen, stay out of trouble, get a job, do well in school, that kind of thing, uh, and live the American dream. And that's what we have. We have 800,000 of these DACA or dreamers who have no criminal records. 91% of them are gainfully employed. They contribute $4 billion a year to the uh, GDP of the U.S. I mean, they are good citizens in that country on everything but paper, as Obama spelled out yesterday. And so for Trump to say, especially in the, in the middle of the hurricane season where there are DACA's living in these hurricane zones. In fact, one, I believe, in Houston died saving somebody else. So this is at a time when they are vulnerable to the hurricanes. And here you have Trump have his attorney general, not even himself, come out and say, they're illegal immigrants, and we're going to, um, you know, in six months, this program is going to end and unless Congress can do something about it. There was such an uproar yesterday, Bill, and we've seen this in recent uh, weeks, even with a local issue, when, there, when something just hits the absolute wrong note with the public. Uh, you know, social media and people standing up can make quite a difference. And so we saw by late last night, Donald Trump tweeting out something that sounds as though um, he's going to kick the can over to Congress, but if they can't fix it, maybe he'll revisit the decision because it just smacked as red meat for his base. It, the timing was cruel. The essence of it is cruel to these children who have done nothing wrong. Uh, and the fact that he said it in a way that just smacked Act as having no practical uh, application to it, it, it seemed racist. And and that was, uh, I think, a step too far for him, and he's felt it. Then why do it in the first place? I mean, that's the question a lot of people were asking. Uh, in, this is, is this a problematic group that doesn't seem to be any evidence of that? Uh, are, are they a burden to American taxpayers? There's no evidence of that. As you right. say, 97% of them are gainfully employed, uh, many, some in the military, some in emergency services, right. uh, you know, in professions. I mean, th- th- these are not people that are on social assistance to any great extent. As a matter of fact, fewer of them by percentage are on uh, government assistance than than many other uh, groups in the United States, including native-born Americans. So on and on it goes. So the question then is why in the first place would he he do something like this? Well, the rationale they tried to use, the spin they put on it, and this is why they say they put Jeff Sessions in front instead of Trump having to front this, uh, was the fact that, you know what, 
it's technically they're undocumented inter- immigrants and we've got to fix the immigration system. You know, everything from the travel ban to the border wall. Immigration was a big part of the Trump rhetoric, uh, that idea of promoting and and um, building this idea of white insecurity and, and the that the immigrants, we have to do something about the immigration issue, all that kind of stuff. This was, uh, you would expect, part of what they're trying to say is, you know what, we have to fix the DACA program if we're going to, in fact, reform and uh, reform our immigration. And Trump tried to take a little victory lap saying, you know, Obama couldn't get this done, um, you know, and and so we're going to get Congress to make this, to fix this program, to make it legal. It, though the timing of it feels like it's one more attempt by Trump to hold his base because his numbers with his base are eroding. You know, he's at 34%, and even recon- recent focus groups that were done, his base are saying, listen, we knew the guy was a little crazy, but we expected him to be productive, and he's not getting anything done. And so I think Trump is coming up with one thing after another to let his base know, hey, I'm still that guy you voted for. In this case, DACA was a huge mistake, and he's feeling it. Even the Republican leadership have got a backbone on this and saying, you know, what a terrible idea it is to take DACA away from these dreamers. The quote of the day, as far as I could see yesterday, Laura, was actually from a congressman, a, bl- a Republican congressman, mm-hmm. I believe from Florida. Uh, who suggested, yeah, Trump is an a-hole, but he's our a-hole. Is is that the attitude right now? Well, some of them need Trump in their districts. Some of them are heavily Trump voter-tied districts. And so if they take an absolute walk away from Trump, they don't know how it's going to affect them in the midterms. They don't know how it affects their constituency. So they're in a really difficult situation, a Faustian bargain. They felt that they could kind of do the deal with the devil that they didn't know uh, and get their tax reform through, their health care through, ride on his populist wave. What's happening, of course, is healthcare was a dud. The tax reform that they're promising, uh, which is now being equated to a tax cut for the rich, doesn't like look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So they will come out of the first year of the Trump presidency having both houses, the Congress and the Senate and the, and the executive branch, without doing anything other than getting a Supreme Court nominee through. That's not going to be enough. And so they're in a really tough position. If they move away from him too dramatically, they might actually lose some of the voters in their in their ridings and it's it's really difficult for them they put themselves in this position and now they're trying to do the math on whether or not staying with Trump is a good idea but I, I mean compared to the tax reform in the health care in the states I think are very apt here uh, because I, I'm having trouble getting my head around Trump's attitude and, and his philosophy here uh, he wants to kill everything that Barack Obama did clearly mm-hmm. Uh, you saw, I'm sure you saw the political cartoon uh, of Trump standing at the podium. Says, "I, uh, t- in in uh, in my ongoing effort to bring back and uh, to kill everything Obama did, I brought back Osama bin Laden. We found him. We <laughs> yeah. brought him back to life. And, okay, and that's that's ludicrous. But I mean, it goes to the attitude mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have. Trump's mad at, mandate seems to be kill everything before there's a replacement for it. He tried to do that with health care. He's trying to do it with tax reform. Now he's trying to do it with this. He's 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 trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist right now. Well, I think what he's trying to do is." is to hit at the softest targets that he's got, which is why we keep seeing him and Fox News bring up Hillary Clinton as though she's relevant in any way to his success at this point. She's not, of course, but she was a great battering ram for his base. And so was Obama. Obama was so highly unpopular that anything that he can say was Obama's that he is doing away with makes it look as though somehow he is fighting Obama. And and the fact of the matter is that that will work for so long for some of the diehards. But, but is anybody but Sean Hannity buying this? I mean, even Paul Ryan, the congressional leader uh, with the Republicans, uh, has supported DACA and thinks this was the wrong move to make. 
It is the wrong move to make, and and it's being uh, claimed as being, you know, pra- there's no practical reason for doing it. This this legislative, we have to reform DACA because we want to have an immigration reform all sewn up, uh, isn't flying either. And so people are saying this is just racist, this is just race identity politics, this is just simply playing to Trump's base. So I, I think we ascribe a little too much credit to Trump on the, on the agenda side to suggest that he is going through policy by policy and trying to scrap it. I think he's just trying to find against anything Obama stood for and fi- and bring up any past uh, perceived sins of Clinton to help show his base that he's still a tough fighting kind of guy. The reality is he's going to be assessed soon, if not already, in terms of what he was able to do to change. I mean, we have to remember that the, a lot of the people who gave him a chance were these voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and some of these other states who said, you know, listen, we're not doing well in this economy. We don't want another Clinton-Bush option. We want to try something different, but we need to see our lives get better. And if Trump can't get anything through having all the power, uh, then he's going to have to stand up against that. So I think what we're seeing is more desperate attempts, one after another, including what he said around Charlottesville, uh, this idea of let me just talk in a way that the base thinks I'm fighting against the, you know, the devils that they perceive, uh, but it's not getting anything done and it's not helping him. But 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 his approach to the immigration Problem, and I'll use mm-hmm. his word because I, I think this is an argument as to whether or not there is a, a problem there with immigration. But I mean, certainly his base seems to think so. He's attacking a group right now that isn't the problem at all. These these are the personification of the American dream. These are people that have done something with their lives, taken advantage of the American mm-hmm. situation, and and are contributing to the society right now. And now there's eight hundred thousand of them that could end up, uh, you know, being deported. But as if a you buy, of this. but if you buy into the very pernicious and false narrative that somehow people from other countries take away the job that you would have had. Then you look at that stat that they're all gamefully employed and say those are could have been jobs that I might have had, right? So there is a, a perspective on that, which I think is a, is, a, is a race politics kind of perspective that says, well, if those people have the jobs, then maybe they took mine. And of course, that's not true. You know, when you bring talented people into an economy, they build the economy, they create more jobs and more wealth that benefits everyone. But the argument about this white insecurity in the U.S. isn't based on facts, facts and stats. It's based on a belief of who can we blame? What minority group can we put our frustrations onto? And Trump has ridden that. He researched the, the very negative narratives in talk radio before he launched his campaign and came down that escalator. He knows that there's enough anger and they're looking to blame a minority. Something we've seen in history uh, can work very effectively for some leaders in a, in a, in a t- with terrible consequences. So everything from the ban to the border wall to going after DACA, even though it doesn't make sense, uh, it plays up to a fear, Bill, and, that, and that's what makes this so sad and, and such a dark history in American politics. Well, well, sadly, I think this is another example of a group of people that just will buy anything he says. I saw a tweet earlier this morning, I guess he's off to South Dakota for a, another rally. Everything he does is a rally these days. Uh, and he says, uh, Americans pay the highest taxes of anybody in the world. We've got to fix that. Well, that's not true. They do not pay the highest taxes in the world. Uh, that That is factually incorrect. Yet you know that people are simply going to read that and say, yeah, we do. Well, this is this is the thing. So much that comes out of Trump's mouth is a lie. And, and it's not even an attempt to make it nuanced. It, these are just lies. And you had John McCain over in Italy make a statement this weekend saying that the United States still stands for truth over lying. You know, still stands for justice over injustice. I mean, you have to have McCain as the elder states person uh, 
of of the United States go internationally and say, you know, we are still the America you trust as allies. Uh, don't just listen to this guy. And and that's that's really something substantial that I don't think we've seen before. So yes, there is a portion of people who want to believe what they want to believe in Trump. I've always said here, Bill is the salesman. He's a he's a great sales guy. He made all his money basically on promoting a brand. Uh, he is promoting a brand to his base, but the question is, does his base, if they lose some of those people who gave Trump a, chan- a chance, are they enough for him to have any kind of sustainability, especially through the midterms? Might they lose Congress over this? But but at what point are some of those people in that base anyway going to say enough is enough? And and even those who, who may be of the extreme right and, and, and just think, okay, no matter what he says, we're going to buy into uh, and, you know, we want some tough guy who's going to be in the pre- – I look at some of the pictures of, of his second visit down to, to the Houston area during uh, the, the Harvey situation. And, and uh, him showing up, of course, at a relief center and saying, what a crowd. Thanks for coming out. Right. They were there, for God's sakes, because their houses were flooded. Not to see him, but he is such a narcissist. It's, it's all about him. Mm-hmm. And his hands were too big, apparently, to hold the boxes. Right? Uh, and, when he did, and when he did actually take one of the boxes yeah. – he walks over to a pickup truck, and instead of putting it in the bed of the pickup truck, he gives it to the driver to put on his lap. I don't think he's been in the habit of lifting and doing Yeah. So here's the thing. He gets some points for showing up twice. He He's good at, at rallying the well, crowd. Well, the second time, let's face yeah. it, was a retail. That was the mulligan, right? Yeah, it was he a blew mulligan. the first one. Well, the first one, he didn't talk about the victims or meet any of them. So the second time down, he tried to look a little bit more uh, like he's grounded. Listen, there, Trump represents not just um, a narrative against minorities. He also represents a stick to the man. The idea of a Molotov, a Molotov cocktail going into, forget the Russian reference there, going into, mm. you know, exactly, going into Washington. Uh, he did try to blow it up. He did try to do things differently. The problem is it's not working. You know, he's not the guy who hires the very best people. Most of his people have left or a big chunk of his key people have had to go. He is not the guy who can make the deal because he's not making the deals, right? You look at the trade deals. They're not, he's not getting what he wants on the trade deals. You look at what's going on with North Korea, the big tough talk, didn't stop them from firing that missile over Japan. So what is he able to achieve? Uh, Not much more than to make his base think that he's fighting for them. And I think to your question, when do they stop having this blind loyalty? When they find out that their lives are not any better. And how they make that calculus, I think it goes to the economy stupid argument, right, that James Carville brought up to help Clinton way back in the day. But it's that idea that, hey, wait a sec, my jobs aren't better, my family's not better off, our town's not doing any better. I gave this guy a chance, and even though I, I like him, I have to go with somebody who's going to get something done for me. And I think that self-interest is what's going to change this. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Always a pleasure. Great to see you again. Thanks for coming in today. You too, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.